early in the third year of the pandemic, in a bar above a cheap set of accommodation, two friends gather to talk about science fiction once again, because it is, as it sometimes always is, the Cushy Podcast! And, and, and a new introduction, which you did not tell me about. Well, I guess the Motel 6 burned down. The Gershwin room, room has now melted wax and ashes, and we had to regroup. Um, I, started, I started my regrouping last week by going to the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, which, as I told you before we started recording, felt I, I started to use the word recovering. It felt like a recovered convention. It felt like something felt in 2015 or 2016. And that's mm-hmm. the first feeling I've had. That's that's why I'm optimistic about the rest of the year. I'm optimistic of what might happen at Worldcon, what <laughs> might happen at World Fantasy. Uh, we had a normal number of attendees. People were taking precautions, but there wasn't a sense of crisis. There wasn't a sense of hunkering down and staying in your room and hoping that nobody yeah. near you had yeah. a disease. So if, if, if that's well, a arguer of the future, I'm all for it. Well, I'm glad because, I mean, what we didn't talk about was the fact that once upon a time, if you were talking about ICFA, ICFA was spring but break. It was the beginning of the science fiction year. Now, given the pandemic to which we've previously referred already, you know, there haven't been typical years for a while now. I mean, Worldcon was a Christmas event for crying out loud. Uh-huh. Yes, you know, um, I had the surreal experience of having you know having my having Hugo arrive because it arrived just a couple of weeks ago uh, for a, a you know a ceremony that only happened right before Christmas. Very strange. But did it feel like you were kicking off the year again? Did you feel like this was this was it? I don't think it was it. I think that there was a lot of ambiguity, ambivalence, I guess I should say, on the part of people about what they were going to do next. There are people who are inveterate con goers who are almost mm. uh, Joe and Gay Haldeman go to every con they, and they probably will go to everything this year. Uh, there were other people that, you know, because of economic situations that arose yeah. during the pandemic, wondering if they can afford world con or world fantasy. Um, and that's an issue which I think is a legitimate issue. There was not a lot of discussion about whether it would be safe to try for things in late summer or fall. I think the general sure. feeling was that uh, the, the the fearful period of the pandemic is over and maybe the slightly cautious era is upon us. Fair enough. I mean, my impression of ICFA when it's been described to me, because I've never attended, is that is it is a mid-sized sort of event, three, four hundred people maybe. Yeah that it has a strong academic stream, lots of readings, and then a lot of people by the pool having a drink, or at least it used to be at the, at the, at the old it's venue. It's exactly what it was again. Yeah. And so I don't know that much is achieved other than everybody gets to go, well, winter's over and we, we can move on. And I suppose on the broad level for most of the people attending, the next event on the calendar, the next big one, because I mean, obviously if you're in North America, I suppose the nebulas become a thing mm. and then there's other bits and pieces, but the big one would be Chicago. The, yes. the uh, you know, this year's world science fiction convention, which will be held the first weekend. I think it is of September of September. Uh, and I think, I mean, obviously, you know, because you're not a complete crazy person, you plan to attend because otherwise you'll be looking out the window from your condo at people going to, to the event and not going yeah. yourself. Well, and it's uh, one of the nice things about uh, not boasting too much about Chicago, but Chicago has hosted more world cons. I'm fairly certain than any other city. This is Chicago yeah. eight, the last four or five of them have been in the same hotel. So the hotel knows what a world con is. They know how to manage. Sure, sure. And, 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 and by and large, the organizers who are not mostly, people that I know well, uh, nevertheless have generational knowledge of how to do this. So we know, I think we can depend it'll be a well-run convention. I think we can also depend probably that somebody on the convention uh, committee will do something silly and somebody will pile <laughs> something. But by and large, uh, I think it's, it's a well-run convention. And, uh, and this part is something that I am sensitive about. It's in the middle of downtown Chicago. You're at Michigan Avenue, the main shopping district, and the river, uh, everything you want to see, you're, you're within really walking distance of the Art Institute, the Museum of Contemporary Art, not quite of science and industry. But one of the things that frustrates me when I go to a city for a convention for the first time is realizing I'm 
20 miles out in the suburbs and I thought I was going to see a city and now I have to take a whole day away from the convention <laughs> to even get there. Not to yeah, mention that's true. any recent conventions, but I think you know some of the ones I'm talking about. Well, actually, some of them aren't that recent anymore, but I mean, the one right. that comes to mind is Toronto, mm-hmm. the, the World Fantasy Convention in Toronto, which was, you know, it's like if you went to the top of the hill, you could, you know, the top of the hotel to the top floor, yeah. you could see Toronto over the curve of the horizon just... It was that far away. Well, that's actually um, the one I had in mind. But there have mm-hmm. been other. And Chicago's been guilty of that. Chicago hosted a couple of world fantasy conventions beyond O'Hare Airport in Schaumburg, which is literally 30 miles from the city. So yeah. it's one of the things I um, think people should be sensitive about. If they put in bids for conventions, can they actually afford to be in the city that they claim to be in? Um, well, most of them can't really, let's be honest. No. I mean, Discon yeah. was and not if, in. Even though. Sorry, I was going to say, Discon was not in its preferred hotel for various reasons that had to do with the pandemic. And the number of people who knew me told me that hotel would have been much better. But at least we were in a neighborhood of D.C. We weren't out in Arlington, Virginia or someplace. Well, yeah. And I mean, in terms of Chicago for a second, I mean, obviously, we can't all come and stay at your house. So that's fair enough. We'll have to get sure. hotels. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know... Uh, I think they're about to open the hotel block for people to book. I think that's coming up in the next mm-hmm. month or so, so you'd be able to book. It is, we've stated your plan to be there. It is my plan to be there. Uh, it occurs to me off on the spot that if they care, we might offer to do an episode of the Hugo Award-winning Cood Street podcast live, which we haven't done in a long, long, long time. No, we have not. A long, 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 long we time, haven't, in fact. We haven't, you and I have not been in the same place since Dublin. Yeah, and people and, and we didn't do Cood Street Live there, so you know we should do a Cood Street Live if we can, if they're interested. Um, and I'm certainly planning to be there. Uh, it's only two weeks, I think. But yeah, maybe two weeks since the Hugo Awards nominations closed. Closed, yes. And I know that I, I think it's the plan that the Hugo ballot will be announced in early April, roughly. Well, one of the things I learned uh, from ICFA and the, the odd timing of ICFA is that, yeah, the Hugo Awards are always announced after ICFA because generally the week of ICFA is the week when the nominees are contacted. Um, and, sure, sure. And, and so that means I'm assuming by now that everything is ready to announce the nominees. Well, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, I, I don't know the behind the scenes and I've got no... Uh no hidden knowledge to share with, with anybody or anything like that. But what I can say is back when I first encountered the Hugos as a participant, we were it was still largely done by mail. And one thing that's changed is the, the time between ballots closing and the announcement, because it used to be there was quite some time because they had to actually get yeah. all the ballots come in, allow the post to finish like functioning and then tally it, then announce it and da, 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 da. In fact, it used to be back when I really first encountered this back in the day at Locus, uh, that it was long enough that the printing the results in or printing the ballot in Locus was the first time most of the world heard what, what the ballot was ah. because it was the only it was it, it, it was that amount of time. But I will be there. You will be there. We will we will we will world con and it will be fine. Um. It does occur to me, we, we're, we're casting around in email for what we would talk about because mm-hmm. normally we would have recorded last weekend and put a conversation out into the world, but you were, I, I was busy. You were obviously enjoying being in person at ICFA mm-hmm. and our overwhelming, you know, urge to podcast has been mediated these days a little bit so that when we're actually at conventions, we're less rather than more likely to podcast. Once upon a time for a while there, if we were at a convention, we would be stockpiling podcasts like crazy. Oh, yeah. That was back when we were doing, you know, a, a, a podcast every week rather than one every couple of weeks. And we do plan to talk next week to Nicola Griffith, I think it is next week, mm. about her forthcoming short novel, Spear, which will be out next month. And I think we can all say we'll be happy if you all pre-ordered that. Uh, but for now, a, a topic I thought I'd throw at you a little bit, and it's very wow. subjective, particularly since your and my reading are both different and out of step with the broader reading community who are ba- who are picking up uh, books in bookstores. And that is, at this point of the year, a third of the way in, have you seen 
any really any books that really leap out to you as candidates for best book of the year? Well, uh, it's interesting because one of the things that uh, uh, that I have to keep in mind now is, is, is since so many novellas are published as books, is that they're actually novellas. But uh, the one of the ones that jumped out at me was Alex Harrow's A Mirror Mended, uh, which is a novella, but it's it continues. Uh, I it's just a remarkable streak. Now, she is a friend of the podcast. She's been on the podcast and uh, is a delightful person to talk to, but she's written three major, three, four very convincing works in a row. So I think that's um, not only somebody who we're going to see on ballads for years to come, but somebody who I think will almost certainly make the novella ballot this year. True, but then Gary, that's a that's a June title. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is it. It's like I never know. What, <laughs> I have to do this. I, I, this is one of the things people think this is a privilege. I'm not sure it's a privilege. It may be a curse. You don't know when the books you're reading are coming up. I've spent um, a, a good a, a good deal of time talking to people about Nicola Griffith Spear because Nicola was at ICFA. And people sure. and I were enthusiastically recommending it for people. And then I realized, well, they can't actually buy it yet. Although one of the books no. is that uh, Nicola managed to get some several dozen arcs sent down, which she autographed at a pool party one night. Uh, so that's that's another novella, which I think nice is for some. Good. Yeah, it's, well, it's you, you've got the arcs and you don't want to just throw them away. And um, and it's it's an appreciative audience. And one of the things which is. This is a footnote to or a parenthesis to what we're talking about. A lot of writers, and I'm, Nicola was not concerned about this at all, but I've talked to writers and editors who believe that if they can get the attention of academics and get their books in the classroom or get their anthologies in the classroom or get their critical studies in the classroom, that they're going to sell lots of copies. Yeah. It's not going to happen. I mean, even if you have, <laughs> even if you have somebody who's teaching a science fiction course or or a fantasy course, and they order your novel, and let's say they order, let's take, um, let's take Alex Harrow's that uh, uh, Ten Thousand Doors of January. It's a very mm-hmm. important piece of novel and very teachable. All kinds of. There may be twenty or thirty people actually teaching science fiction courses, and those courses might actually enroll thirty people. If you get two or three sections of science fiction or fantasy being taught, you're talking about 30 to 90 copies of the book being sold. It's not going to you know, make Ooh. you into a bestseller. Um, I should put a footnote to that saying, if you've written an academic book that may have been printed in an edition of 500 copies, yeah, 20 or 30 in the classroom would probably be a pretty good chunk of sales. But that's not going <laughs> to happen either because... Piece of advice for anybody who wants to write books about science fiction. No, they're not going to be adopted for classroom use. If you're teaching a class on science fiction or fantasy, you're trying your best to get the students to read fiction. And you're not going to have them spend a big chunk of their time reading theory or criticism or or even biography. Well, actually, it's interesting you talked about nonfiction Hmm. books for a minute. Always, 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 the weakest part of my Hugo ballot and my Locus ballot, right, Mm. is the nonfiction or reference books. I don't really read a lot of reference works about science fiction, partly because I'm up to my uh, elbows in reading other things, you know. I just, for example, had an open reading period for an anthology close, and I have literally a mountain, a mountain of stories to get through over the next week or two so I can get them all read for the project. But... I can think of two possible candidates in our January to March hmm. period that are well worth Hugo consideration. Back in January, Ibi Zoboy, uh, who was a Clarion West attendee, I believe, and then a Clarion West tutor, uh, hmm. published Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler through hmm. Penguin, Penguin Random House. That was an interesting book and is well worth your attention. The other book that's that's either I think it's just about to come out is that Mike Ashley, an academic, has been laboring in the mines for lo these many decades recording the history of magazines and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And the final volume of his history of the magazines, volume five, The Rise of the Cyberzines, the story of the science fiction magazines from 1991 to, uh, to 2020, is done. It's 
are about to come out from Liverpool University Press. There is, in fact, an, an advanced review copy, Gary, sitting in Oakland, waiting to be sent oh. out to someone to review. I've looked at, well, and Michael is, um, I think he's an academic by inclination more than by trade. He's certainly a scholar. And mm. this has been going on, as you mentioned, for decades. As I recall, the first of these history of the science fiction magazines were actually anthologies with long historical bits in between. Um, yeah. And he, and then he uh, expanded the critical bit. And so now we have four volumes covering literally the entire history of the science fiction magazine. Yeah. Not only is he a good reader and a good critic, but he's incredibly exhaustive. I get the impression that he has read every issue of every magazine, has figured out who bought it, which editor edited it, um, and has managed to place it in, in context, both yeah. for British and American zines. It's just uh, uh, one of the... I mean, look, it's, it's, an, it's an impressive work of scholarship. That's the, I, I think so. I mean, there's even a page, apparently, I've been told by someone who's seen it, on the magazine that I worked on, Eidolon, back in the 90s, mm -hmm. which I'm curious to see, I must confess. Though I, I will say the one barrier to the rise of the cyberzines making it a Hugo Ballot mm -hmm. is that it is a very expensive um, academic publication. The ebook appears to be the same price as the print book, and it appears to be about 120 bucks. Um, which... It's unfortunate, but that's about what academic books are like these days. But I think there's another yeah. barrier. The other, the other question is, uh, do nonfiction books, the, the best related book uh, frequently would consist of biographies, studies of writers, uh, autobiographies, Jack Williamson's autobiography, for example, or Asimov's autobiographies, or occasional critical studies. I got actually a couple of collections of my reviews got Hugo nominations. My sense is that actual books are not strongly surviving in that category anymore. This is a category that, that now true. it includes blog posts, it includes speeches, it includes all sorts of things uh, that that are easier to get to uh, and easier to get hold of and easier to vote on. In other words, if somebody has put uh, a long blog post, and I think uh, there have been some long blog posts that deservedly got on the Hugo ballot. But that's there for everybody mm. to read. And to try to track down a $100 academic book is something, you're even even if a lot of people want to do it, you're not going to get enough people actually yeah. looking at it to vote. There's, there's no doubt that accessibility is, is, a, is a, or availability maybe, is, is, a, is a factor. And money is a definite barrier. You know, yeah. That's one of the reasons why some of the most popular items on the ballot will be you know, the media items, which you tend, you tend to be able to watch on streaming yeah. or download or whatever you might do. I mean, still, you know, I mean, this is actually, you, you may be aware as well, there's a movement, before I get back to what I was going to talk about, in, there was a movement in Hugo-related fandom, I suppose, uh, to change a rule that says that any item that gets onto the ballot, that's on the ballot, must be nominated by at least 20% of all nominees. Now, this was to stop low-performing categories. So what they're saying is, like, let's say you have a 1,000 people nominate for the Hugos this year. Mm. If you have a cat category where it gets fewer than 200 nominators taking part, it gets dropped from the ballot and isn't awarded. The whole category? Yeah, the whole category. It happens very, very, very rarely. I would think so. Um, I mean, I, however, however, it's becoming an issue because roughly the same population of humans, well, no, that's not fair, the same number of humans who nominated in the fan categories, best fan writer, best fan artist, mm -hmm. best fan publication, or best fanzine, um, nominate now as nominated 20 years ago. But you get many, many, many more times people nominating for, say, best dramatic long form sure. and best dramatic short form. Well, that means that the 20% figure changes instead of needing 20% of the people who voted for best novel, you need 20% of the people who voted for uh, best dramatic, you know, uh, th thing along yeah. for. And so there was, there was a risk, a genuine risk that the fan categories could drop off the Hugo ballot. And that's not something that you'd want to see. It's not something you want to see at all. And I think one of the things that attending a lot of Hugo ceremonies has taught me uh, is that the fan let me put it this way, excluding the novel category for a moment, maybe excluding the novella category, 
the degree of enthusiasm and, and ecstasy and gratitude on the part of the recipient is greater the lower you go on the ballot. The people who, to whom the Hugo Award really means a lot are people in the fan categories. They get mm. absolutely uh, thrilled when they get this. The category was probably, yeah, you're right. By and large, even though last year at the Hugo Award, the uh, writer, I forget the writer of uh, The Good Place, I think, won and sent in a video. But by and large, the really popular awards that lots and lots of people vote on, like dramatic long form, mean very little to the people who receive them, frankly. And there have been years when it was very difficult to convince somebody like Steven Spielberg that he ought to care about being nominated for a Hugo. So on the one hand, you've got a giant, gigantic production company or a TV network or Netflix or, um, or whatever that is getting a lot of nominations but doesn't mean much to the winner. And you've got the fan categories, which is what the Hugos really were designed to do in the first place. Yeah, um, yeah I, absolutely. I, so so I, I'm, I'm so all anyway, for, that, That's even, an issue. Even though I don't know much about the fan awards myself, I think they're crucial to the feeling of the awards. I think they're crucial to maintaining the sense of community that the Hugos uh, generate, and I hope they survive. I do too, very much. You know, I, I look forward to um, seeing the Hugo Award ballot be announced and to being able to celebrate the people who, or, or groups whose work is nominated in those categories. To get back to the issue of books of the year, though, Gary, mm-hmm. a book, you know, a books to, to shout out about now, um, a book on my to-read pile that's been uh-huh. raved about is Sequoia Nagamatsu's debut, How High We Go in the Dark, which is a novel in stories about uh, the Arctic Plague. Mm-hmm. And it sounds fascinating. It's supposed to be brilliantly, beautifully written. Um, I was buried in the middle of a long fantasy novel when it first hit my, t- my desk, so it's something I have to get back to. Mm. Um, Tochion Yubuchi uh, published his, I think it's his first adult novel yeah, in Goliath, right. which has been lauded hith- hither and yon, and I would not be surprised to see it on a Hugo ballot. Um, mm. Nedia Korafor brought the Akata series to a conclusion with Akata Woman, and I remember loving the first volume of that a great deal, mm-hmm. a book that won't make the Hugo ballot probably. And that saddens me because I think it deserves to be in that conversation is the latest book from Adam Roberts, the, this, mm-hmm. which gets a very enthusiastic review from Ian Mond at locusmag.com uh, just recently. And which I recommend you go and have a look at another spectacularly interesting, fascinating, engaging novel from, from Adam. Uh, but one that people will probably have to seek out a little bit. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking been of, a, yeah. one, one title which I have in my, as a matter of fact, I actually started reading it last night, uh, not knowing much about it, but struck me as being uh, 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 absolutely interesting in the beginning. It's Samit Basu, I think the name is, The City Inside. Samit Basu, yeah. And uh, it's, it looks like a near future. It looks like a dystopia. It's really dystopian to begin with. But what's unnerving is it's in the first few chapters, this takes place in Delhi. Uh, it, the dystopia is so close to describing the reality of today that you don't know for, <laughs> for a bit whether you're in a realistic novel or a dystopia in a novel. And that by itself is frightening. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's a really fun book. I mean, it's a reprint of a book that was published in India under a different title. I gathered um, that. Yeah. Chosen Spirits. Chosen Spirits was, was uh, published in India a couple of years ago. And assuming, it's, it's a really the, book. The Hugo Award rules, I assume, are similar like the rules we have for Yes, uh, absolutely. It's the first time in English it's eligible. Or first time so I think that available also, to think, American in English writers. I think that also is a June title. Oh, okay. And I've already talked about uh, how much I liked and admired uh, Kelly Barnhill's When Women Are Dragons, which I hope gets a lot of attention because it's, it's one of those things where we've talked about before. The dragon thing is a spectacular thing to have in the middle of a novel, but it's a terrific mm. kind of coming-of-age novel in all kinds of other ways. Um, and it just, uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the ones that sticks with me sometime after I've read it. A, a great book to look forward to in May when it comes out. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of standout 
anthologies that are worth people looking at if they're interested in such things. Um, back a couple months ago, uh, Reclaim the Stars, which is a Latinx uh, science fiction fantasy space opera Latin American dias mm -hmm. diaspora anthology came out, got, got a strong review in Locus and is well worth seeking out. Um, Tor.com are just publishing right now um, The Way Spring Arrives and Other Stories, which is a collection of uh, writers from uh, uh, sorry, a collection of stories from female and non-binary Chinese writers, mm -hmm. edited by Yu Chen and Regina Kan Yuang, and in a beautiful edition from Tor.com, as you'd expect, because they only do beautiful editions. And probably the other one in the first this first quarter of the year, because there's another couple later on, but probably in this quarter of the year, the other one would be um, Tr uh, Trouble the Waters, uh, Tales from the Deep Blue, which is an anthology that comes from Jack Jack White's uh, mm -hmm. press, Third Man Books, and is edited by Cherie Renee Thomas, Pan Morrigan, and Troy L. Wiggins, and collects... Uh, science fiction fantasy stories around the themes of ocean and water from uh, diaspora writers. And it looks really interesting. It's a fabulous cover. And that's also at Nord. So th th those anthologies, which are, because it's this thing that happens, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. another topic we may get to touch on uh, about inclusion in science fiction. And one thing that happens is that anthologies are, are rightly, well, not rightly or wrongly, smartly or not, used as... <sighs> representatives of some of, of, of a thing you want to make, a way of making a case, making an argument, whatever else, for a particular kind of science fiction or a change in science fiction. Ken Loop published a couple mm -hmm. of volumes of translated science fiction that he'd chosen from China as a way of showing the variety of China, in Chinese science fiction. There have been any other numbers of movement-type anthologies. Cherie Renee Thomas herself did, you know, the couple of anthologies she did back that won the World Fantasy Award uh, in the, in the, the early 2000s. Yeah, the current anthology she's uh, doing with Gunnar uh, uh, Joy. Uh, yeah, yeah, Pecky. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, yes. Well, I mean, that that's coming out later this year, and and, and basically right. ties in with the dark matter books because you know you've got Africa Risen, which is a new era speculative Risen, fiction, yeah. which is the other big one to look forward to. That's coming out, I think, near closer to Christmas, so like November. Well, one of the things that does frustrate me, and you've raised a good point about anthologies, is I always look forward to the Hugo Ballot because I want to nominate an anthology, and of course I can't. And I can't nominate mm. a collection either. Um, and yet the point you're making is that the shifts in the field, of the, 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 the sea changes in the field, are frequently more visible in anthologies or visible in anthologies earlier than they are visible in, in novels. Um, that feels true. I feel like... I feel like what happens is people who are looking to make a change in science fiction see anthologies as a tool they can use to, to build an argument in front of readers mm. because you get to you know, produce a, uh, you know, give people a single snapshot of a spectrum of a group of people, a spectrum of arguments, ideas, whatever you're doing. That was arguably what Dangerous Visions was back in the 60s. And yeah. there have been any number of anthologies at different times, successful or otherwise, that have looked to do exactly the same thing. And these books that we're talking about, just as uh, Ogana Chavway, Donald Pecky's um, the year's best African speculative fiction from last year and uh, Dominion from the year before uh, were part of a deliberate attempt to, to, to do something, to put work in front of people and make an argument about its quality, its complexity, its variety, its vitality. It's also a way of recognizing the variety of authors who may not become visible for a year or two or ever in terms of uh, publishing novels or novellas. When, it, when you look at an anthology, and, and you're right, I, I've looked at uh, the, the, the couple of Korean anthologies that came out this past year, this, the two South Asian anthologies, two Israeli science fiction anthologies. A lot of the writers in those anthologies who are fascinating writers may be working on a novel, but they're not going to become visible. So our visible, the most visible South Asian science fiction, just to use Pakistan and India and, and, and Nepal and uh, Sri Lanka, are going to be in those anthologies. And another thing which I think is a plus is uh, having written uh, essays. I wrote, I wrote an essay or two, I think, for the Cambridge Companion to Science Fiction, which won 20 years ago in Glasgow, Worldcon. Okay, not 20 years ago, but close. Um, 
And everybody who was in that felt like we had a piece of a Hugo Award. And an yeah. antho- so recognizing an anthology is also a way of recognizing um, all the authors in that anthology. It, it strikes yeah. me as it's a very important part of the science fiction field, which is overlooked. And I realize that world science fiction doesn't like to proliferate, proliferate categories. Um, but it does proliferate, proli- proliferate categories that don't make that much difference to the creators in those categories. I'm thinking of the dramatic presentation categories. Well, you know, we're projecting, we don't know, but I would say my understanding that one of the barriers, which occasionally they break through, but not often, Hmm. is they don't want to see works double eligible, you know, so you get this problem where, well, all the short stories are available for all the short story categories. Do you need an anthology? You're just making the same work available. Then you're talking about that. Yeah. Then you're completely ignoring the purpose of an anthology. Well, it's one of the reasons why they argue against having a best first novel, Hugo. Yeah. You know, because it's eligible for best novel. It was the argument against having a best young adult novel and why I think the, I think the, if I recall correctly, the uh, young adult category is still not a Hugo, right? Still not officially a Hugo, right. And that's one of the reasons, one of the arguments why, because those young adult novels are all eligible for Hugos to, as best novel. So why do they need to be double eligible? It's, it's a, that, that's a reasonable argument because it comes up every year when we're talking about the Locus Awards. Mm. I keep looking at Locus does have a young adult ca- category and a it fantasy does. category and a horror category and a first novel category. And theoretically, and that's confusing. Have, it's confusing. And theoretically, you could have one dynamite novel that meets all those categories. It's never happened. I don't, want to, get into the, I don't want to get into the business too much of, of commenting or criticizing the Locus Awards, but I will say. It has never made a lot of sense to me that, you know, you you make an arbitrary decision that a work sits in the best first novel category rather than the best novel category when sometimes there have been years when the best first novel was the best novel. I think Neuromancer seems to me to be a classic example of that, but there are many others. Uh, and, And if there's a sense of voting, and I've never... I've never felt this as a voter and I've never talked to anybody who felt this, but if there's a sense that, well, this is probably the best novel of the year, but since it's a first yeah. novel, we'll give it the best first novel award. And so we'll free up something for somebody else. That's when you get into the Oprah Winfrey effect. You get an award and you get an award and sure, you get sure. an award. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at this year's awards and again, this risks being a thing, but if you look at the first novel category for the Locus awards right now, the Unbroken by C.L. Clark, mm-hmm. A Master of Gin by P. Jolly Clark, Machine Head by S.B. Divya, um, The All-Consuming World by Cassandra Kaur, uh, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chen, The Unraveling by Benjamin Rosenbaum, The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo, On Fragile Waves by E. Lily Yu, all outstanding novels of the mm-hmm. year, aren't up for best science fiction or fantasy novel, they're up for best fir- first novel. Good point. And I says, so, which suggests to me that they are being kind of pushed into that category to open up other novels for awards. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the question, there, there are two ways of asking the eternal question, are there too many awards in science fiction fantasy? Um, yeah. One way is simply to say, yes, of course. The other is to say, are there too many awards in a given award? Are there too many categories? And yeah. when you have categories that, in effect obviate other categories. I think that's a problem. In other words, if the first novel category is something that um, is going to drain away or novels from what should be the best novel category, that's one thing. YA is a slightly different issue. I mean, if we, if we didn't yeah. have the YA category, it would be an interesting sort of almost theoretical argument to ask if a YA novel has ever been awarded the Hugo for best novel. And the answer is probably yes, but probably not because it was published as YA. I, did, did, did Ender's Game win a Hugo? I think it did. Yes, it did. It won the Hugo and the Nebula. Okay, yeah. And, and I, I think it may game. stand as the only case where an author has ever won two consecutive years, the Hugo and, and, and um, uh, Nebula for, for Best Novel. Yeah, okay. Speaker for the Dead, yeah. And neither of those at the time were regarded as YA novels. So you want run into definitional problems then. You're talking about how something is published and marketed. Yeah. I don't know. I, maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you do. 
Well, we've said this before many times on the show. If you went back to look at, let's take, I don't know, let's take Arthur C. Clarke's The City and the Stars. It's about a young man who sort of challenges his staid society by any sort of literary definition in terms of the characters, the themes, mm -hmm. and so forth. That's a young, young adult novel. But so was yeah. probably, so were probably two thirds of the novels published in the early 50s. By today's standards. Well, well, if you made that definition, you know, that, or that distinction, which we, you know, we don't usually, right? No, you know, it's not. So, um, I mean, it's it's one of the issues with awards is that you have to invent categories. You have to have categories, otherwise, you're giving one book of the year award, and nobody's going to show up at your ceremony except the three nominees, or four, or five, yes. or twenty, or whatever. One book which I don't think will make you know, sort of the best genre books of the year because, um, honestly, we don't really consider it a genre book, is a book which has showed up in my mail this week, Ah, which is the new Karen Joy Fowler novel, Booth. Anything by Karen Joy Fowler is of interest, and this variant historical novel about John Wilkes Booth and his family looks fascinating. It Did is. Did you end up reading I, it? Yeah. I, I, I do not have a copy of it. I told you, I think we mentioned this on an earlier podcast, and there was a long story about the Booth family and her um, previous collection of stories. So she'd been doing this research for a long time. This, I gather, is a straight historical novel. It got a rather unfair review, I thought, in the New York Times, uh, which seemed to not know what she was doing, So, which made yeah. me more curious about it because it is Karen Joy Fowler. And if you go back to... Uh, look at some of her earlier fiction. There's been a lot of kind of, is it mainstream or not? Um, so I, I don't think the issue is whether this has fantasy in it. Uh, the issue is whether it's a good Karen Joy Fowler novel, which I suspect it is. Um, I'm sure it is. An, 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 another novel, which I wonder if it'll get the attention it, it, it I think it deserves, is, is Nevo's The Siren Queen, which is her second yeah. novel. It's not a, it's, it's not a literary uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say pastiche. It's not doing the same kind of thing that her first novel did with The Great Gatsby, but it's taking a Hollywood career of the 30s and writing a very sort of believable, powerful novel. All Hollywood novels are kind of crypto fantasies because Hollywood itself is. But this becomes more bizarre and more fantastic and really more of a horror novel as it goes along. And yet um, it seems that what I'm seeing about it is that this is kind of a novel about Hollywood history. The interesting thing she does, though, is almost the opposite of what she did in The Chosen and the Beautiful. None of the characters, none of the settings are actual. She, in other words, she does not yeah. mention Judy Garland. She doesn't have Louis B. Mayer. Everything is invented, which is that's essentially the same way that uh, some of the classic Hollywood novels have, have, have dealt with this. But I, again, it looks a lot on the surface like a historical novel rather than a fantasy, but sure, it really sure. gets substantially fantastic. Um, but, well, Nevo really has you know, emerged as one of the most interesting writers in the field over the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. And two other, contra two other contrasting novels that I'll mention, contrasting in that their strategies are different, but they're both very interesting novels. And that is uh, the one I just finished enjoying enormously guy gabriel k's all the seas of the world me With too oh you just finished just it. last okay. night i just finished reading it last night and it strikes Did you me like uh, it? i liked it I, I actually i don't you never i mean he okay guy is a friend of ours a friend of the podcast mm. and so forth. And you never know how you but is it is it unfair to say to a writer in mid-career that he's getting a substantially better than he was at the beginning of the career <laughs> well, I, I would like to think that any writer would hope they would be better later in their career rather than the beginning. Yeah, you but pick here's up some the skills. Thing. You get to know what you're I doing. Mean, it, 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 he does what he, he, he's very comfortable with what he's doing, but he's very discomforting at the same time. And again, this is a novel which is, except for Guy Kay's usual torquing of history, has relatively little fantasy in it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, there's, this, a, there's a small fantastical element. Yeah, a couple of them. I mean, there's a magical stag and there's some mysterious voices that appear and that sort of thing. But essentially, it's a historical novel in his reinvented version of late medieval, early renaissance. Actually, Europe. let me ask you a question about All the Seas of the World, which is coming out in May, so you can pre-order it now, Gary, that occurred to me while I was reading it. Now, I loved the book. I confess I might have shed a tear once or twice. It was quite emotional, I thought. 
Mm. Um, but do you think there's a risk with that sort of book that for um, to achieve your affect, that you're leaning on the fact that the reader will understand who you mean enters a room at a particular time when you're not calling them that? You know, for example, Genghis Khan is not in this book, but if you have somebody walk in and you call him Dave, but it's plainly supposed to be Genghis Khan, right? Your reader will get a th- an emotional response to the, the appearance of a famous name that they won't necessarily get to the analog. And you mm. think there's a risk that the author can rely on traumatic effect from the analog effect, but doesn't actually get it because maybe the reader doesn't understand, doesn't know the parallel. I think it's a calculated uh, risk on, on, on Guy's part because mm. uh, as I, I, I just wrote my review and I, I, I was thinking, who reads Guy K novels? Because there, there's a huge fan base and the fan base sure, knows sure, sure. all of his code words. They know, they know what he, the word term he uses for Italy and the term he uses for uh, Sicily and, and, and France and, and Spain and so forth and so on. The character codes, sometimes they're coded to real characters, sometimes not. But on the other hand, there are people who probably don't know any of that, who don't care, who aren't trying to draw equations. You know, even even his map of the Mediterranean isn't quite a map of the Mediterranean. Um, sure. So I think well, there's that thing where, where you're reading digitally and you're trying to like just map one part of the world to the other just to make sure you've got the right part of the world in mind. Yeah. Because when, when you say you know I'm in Rome and I travel to Sicily or I go to you know Florence or somewhere you have a real automatic in your mind, roughly idea of where things are because you know the world we're in. When you're dealing with the analogs, there is an, a slight risk that maybe you don't. I mean, I think the most powerful character in the book for me is the one he made up entirely, uh, Lenia Serrano, uh, yep. who I think is a fabulous character in the book. Um, you, you, you're you already guilty of a spoiler there, you know. That's well, not the name character. chapter five. I don't well, think it's a real spoiler character. No, it's not. I mean, but but nevertheless, you know, she's a terrific character. There's, uh, she's a powerful character, the most powerful central character, uh, female character that I think Kay has written. Uh, but I think there are people at the other end. There are fantasy readers who don't even object to the minimal fantasy in his novels, but who enjoy the world building. So for some readers, all this is world building. For some people, it's kind of a game. It's world recognizing. It's like, mm. this is what he's done to this. This is what he's done. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't use Jews and Catholics and Muslims, but he's obviously talking about them. And sure, sure, if, sure, sure. If, if you make those equations, uh, fine. That's satisfying. It's kind of playing a game. If you don't make them, I'm guessing there are a fair number of readers who don't make them, you're still talking about three competing religions in the same uh, area of the world. And then I think... The, my, my guess is that the middle of the Guy K readership are people who have a little bit of both. They love the invention. They love the freedom. They love the fact that he's in control of this world, which means he's not constrained by history. But he's also yeah. going to give you nods and winks about the history that he thinks you might recognize. Um, so on the one hand, you've got historical readers who love the, the, the history. On the other hand, you've got fantasy readers and somewhere in between. The book I was going to compare it with, though, Somebody who uses a completely different strategy, and that's John Crowley in Flint and Mirror, uh, mm-hmm. which is an expa- expansion of, uh, I guess, a novella he published in Gardner du Zois, no, one of his last yeah, big yeah. anthologies. Every character in it is a historical character. He's done his research mm-hmm. inside and out. There's a lot of stuff uh, that I've always found fascinating. I've always been fascinated by the Elizabethan astrologer or, or, or alchemist. John D. He's a fairly major figure in it, um, and all the other characters are part of uh, the the court of uh, Elizabeth or part of uh, the papal court late in the novel. In other words, it's a character. It's a novel where you benefit from knowing the history. And I had to look up bits of the history to figure out exactly what these relationships are, because these are not these are not your familiar characters. These are not. Uh, Genghis Khan. These are Irish rebels sure, uh, sure. And, uh, and diplomats and so forth and so on. It's, and again, there's a fairly minimal amount of, of fantasy in it. Uh, but it's, and, and it's, it's also a very effective novel. Stylistically, it's as beautifully written as anything you expect from Crowley. Um, but it's almost a pure historical novel. 
and I have no objection to pure historical novels, and I wonder now if if there's even a point in drawing a line between pure historical novels, quote unquote, and and sort of fantasy horse historicals. You could adopt the what I was what is approximately the guy Gabriel K argument, I think, which is that historical fantasies set in analogs are arguably more honest than straight uh, historical uh, fiction mm. because historical fiction pretends to fill in gaps that it really can't. You know, it, you know when Hilary yeah. Mantel writes Wolf Hall, you know, she's filling in information perspectives and she may have researched and educated herself, but the words she used were probably never spoken. Some of the events may never have happened, but it's pasted into this situation where, you know, you're building a picture of Oliver Cromwell or whoever. And is that, is that as honest, I suppose, as setting it in a parallel analog? I don't of, think of honest situation. I don't, yeah, I don't think honest is the right word there. And and we've had this argument with, with I've, I've had this argument with a guy before, and and with our our other friend Cecilia Holland, who's a his, uh, experienced historical novelist, whose argument is that what what Hilary Mantel is doing is writing a version of speculative fiction. Historical fiction is speculative in exactly the same way that science fiction is, except it's speculating about what happened instead of what might happen or what could happen. So it's, 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 it's not being dishonest. It's letting yeah. you know up front, this is fiction. It's not pretending that this is anything other than Mantell's version of Thomas, Thomas Cromwell. But don't you think there's a risk that when you present it as historical fiction, you're presenting it as fact or close to fact? One thing that motivated, my, well, that, that is behind my view in this space is there's a recent episode of one of our favorite podcasts, The Writer and the Critic, where mm-hmm. our friends Ian McDonald, Man, Ian McDonald, Ian Mond, McDonald. <laughs> and Kirsten, Ian Mond and uh, Kirsten McDermott talk about a couple of books. And one book they talk about and argue about at length is a book called When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut. I think it's the book. Huh. And this book, which won the uh, English Pen Award, is a fictional history of real characters, real real people doing things they never did, right? There's all kinds of stuff that's been laid in. And it's not true about the people that they're talking about. It's not, you know, the portrayal of Einstein and Schrodinger and Heisenberg in this book. They're not true. And so that's doing a disservice of sorts to those 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 real people and putting a variant amount of information out in the world. And whether that is a fair thing, and I know that there's a, an argument, I mean, I know that Ian acknowledges the point which is made by Kristen uh-huh. in the discussion because I listened to it in their February episode, that, you know, it, this book gets it wrong, that it doesn't play fair by the characters. Now, I certainly built my, my feeling about Wolf Hall is that uh, Hilary Mantel is trying to play fair by her characters. She's not looking to misrepresent right. historical figures. But it's a, a risk in this space when you put words into the mouths of fictional versions of real people. But is this a, is this, is this a non-fiction book or a, a fiction no, book? No, it's a fiction book. It's a non Okay, well, it, it's, it's, I mean, we, you, you were just holding up um, – people can't see what you're holding up. You were just holding up Karen Joy Fowler's booth. And I know from the story, I've not read this, but you know she's – She's not only putting words in the mouths of characters, she's essentially creating characters about whom most readers know absolutely nothing. I mean, we think we know a few things about John Wilkes Booth. She said more than once when she was working on this book that she's trying to call attention to the rest of the family. She's trying to call attention to how the Booth family became so prominent. Most of these characters she's writing about are historical characters. And except for the one guy, maybe two guys, Edwin Booth, the actor, and John Wilkes Booth, None of us know anything about them. So he's, she's effectively inventing the characters. Now, is she misrepresenting them? Almost no one knows. I mean, I don't know how much research there is. I don't know how many diaries she looked at. I'm, I'm assuming she did assiduous amounts of research. But essentially, when we read a historical novel, even if I'm reading a historical novel uh, that deals with, I don't know, Genghis Khan you mentioned, I'm well aware of the fact that I'm, reading somebody's invented version of Genghis Khan and not an attempt to representing the real thing. Back mm. in the thir- there, there, there was a very popular writer who seems to have influenced a lot of historical novelists over the years, back in the 30s and 40s, named Harold Lamb. 
And he wrote biographies yeah. of Genghis Khan and so forth and so on. And I read a bunch of them. I thought they were terrific. At the time, I don't think I knew whether I was reading novels or, um, or, or historical events. And I think that kind of confusion can happen when you're young or when you're reading kinds of uh, informative historical novels. But by, by the time you get to the level of, uh, of, of a Hilary Mantel, let's say, I think that she under that, that readers understand that this is her interpretation of characters based on solid research. In other words, the rule that she's following, I understand, is that you can't have characters do things that they didn't do. You can't have characters violate the historical record. But within the niches, within the chinks of that historical record, there's a lot of room to move around. Sounds about right. And look, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm not sure entirely how I feel about it all myself. You know, I'm a little bit, I'm kind of torn. Um, so, yeah. I'm curious as well, since we, we touched on Guy Gavriel K and we're going around this, and maybe at some point we'll talk to Guy about all the uh, worlds of the sea. Do you think you could say that in a way, Guy's basically written, um, you know, like, one mega series in amongst his his collect his his collect work. I mean, he's got Fionnavar as a thing. He's got yeah. the uh, Under Heaven and River of Stars as a thing. But the Sarantine Mosaic, Tagana, Song of Furabon, the Lions of Al Rasan, mm-hmm. the Last Light of the Sun, um, All the Seas of the World, Children of Earth and Sky. They feel like they're all part of a fictionalized Mediterranean history that yeah. he has been working on. There's something Maybe like, not systematically, but still. Uh, yeah, and, I, and we don't know his creative process, and we have to ask him about it. I mean, the current series, which is this one and the brightness long ago, is set about a thousand years after the Sarantium books. Uh, but it's clearly, they're, they're clearly the same kinds of, the same places. Um, so he's revisiting his own invention, what, decades later, I guess. Mm. But it seems to me it is consistent. It seems to me it's a it, it's 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 a consistent and deliberately deliberately consistent setting. I think people would yeah. be very surprised right now if we saw a novel from Guy K in which his code names for Italy, Spain, or or, or or France were suddenly changed into something else, and if the geography was shifted around, I think it would be really disoriented. Yes, or or if he did a, a modern era version. You know, mm. if he brought the, 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 that world up to the Second World War, say. Yeah, that would be confusing as well. Um, I think, you know, in, in a way, that's an argument for doing pure fantasy. I mean, one of the things that and other fantasy writers who dealt with historical periods in interesting ways yeah. that relate to this would be probably, I'd say, Joe Abercrombie and, of all people, K.J. Parker. They both have consistent yep. histories, internally consistent histories, that sort of map onto European history, um, but but are deliberately uh, estranged, I guess. I mean, every time yep. you think you've figured out something in, in, in K.J. Parker's universe, he'll pull the rug out from under you because he's he likes to do that. Um, yep. You know, there are clearly figures that are meant to echo Plato and, and, uh, and, and the, uh, this, his studium is, is, is apparently... Uh, a direct echo, and and the same thing's true with um, Abercrombie, where you've got a medieval world that's suddenly becoming me- mechanized, it's suddenly moving into the modern era. Yeah, and you're oh you're there. Okay, your image is yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. So okay. let me ask you this: as we get to the very mm-hmm. end of this episode that we've thrown together, and hasn't been completely incoherent, um, what are you reading next? Because we've both just finished um, reading all the series of the world, I have an obligation uh, to read stuff, but I really want to sit down with a book. So, what are you thinking? What are you reading? Well, I, I, I'll tell you one of the things, and this was a frustration with the Guy K novel. And it's becoming, I'm getting fewer and fewer physical books. So, mm. my, my, my first, my first, I guess, expressed desire is that the next thing I read is on paper. Um, <laughs> but in fact. In fact, what I'm reading right now is a Samit Basu novel, which we mentioned, that Chosen is, Spirits, yeah. again, on, on, on my Kindle. Uh, I have a couple of other things that look like they're going to be fun, but they're not physical books. And the other thing, when I'm, this is, we've, I've whined about this before. When I'm looking forward to reading a book, I like to look across the room and say, I'm going to read that book. 
Now I have to go and find the goddamned index somewhere in my Kindle to find out if it's downloaded and is it there. And I'm, I'm not seeing a spine. I'm not seeing a nice cover. I'm not seeing the name of the author. I'm seeing a file which is sometimes horribly corrupted because not every publisher seems to know how to format a Kindle. So uh, let me ask you this question, Gary. It was your birthday this week, wasn't it? It was my birthday, yes. I was really old. Which, which one? 76. Do you think that colored your response to your Kindle, Gary? I loved my Kindle when I first got it. I first, okay, first of all, okay, you, you, you want to talk about age? I had a Sony reader, Sonny, back in the day. <laughs> and so I went through yes. two or three generations of Kindle. This is a Kindle white I got a couple of years. The problem is not reading electronically. The problem is, yes, having developed habits of appreciating books and loving books, I, I'm at, at the end of the Guy K thing, I wanted to close the book and have that satisfying feeling sure. you have of having finished sure. something. That would, instead, it just, you know, I just push Look, the button and turn it off. I want to finish a book and close it and put it on the shelf. I don't want to turn it off. Well, I, I do empathize, I must say. I, I love my Kindle. I use my Kindles. That's mm -hmm. not an anti-Kindle thing, even though I was saying in social media this week that it, is a, it actually has a terrible interface for managing your library, which makes it less desirable. Well, that's part of the problem, but, too. But the thing that I am, let's say, irrationally uh, nostalgic for is there was a period when I would have a shelf in my office of this year's books, ones that you know, just sitting there, 2022 books, mm -hmm. the ones that I was going to read this year that I've already read. There'd be maybe uh, advanced reader copies or printed copies, or whatever, and I would go and pick. I could see what I was reading. Uh, they would be there at a glance on, you know, on, on the wall. I could pick them up. I could read them. That was great. I don't have that now. I mean, I look at the books that I've been thinking about reading. It's like, what? Here's what I have to read. I hmm. have today and tomorrow. I guess I've got a review. I've got to edit Locus columns for next month. So there's right. that. I also have. Um about a hundred witch stories I've got to read that came in through the ah. BIPOC open reading submission period. And so I do need to do that. And I want to, I'm not at all reluctant to or whatever else, but I do have to do it though. It, it's, it's been a long time since I've done anything close to slush reading. And it's interesting getting back into that rhythm of how, just how much of a thing you need to read before you can decide you mm -hmm. don't need to read all of it. Right. Uh, I did do a quick experiment where I raced through 50 of them and only read the first sentence. I didn't read the covering letter. I didn't read anything. I just read the first sentence. And although I got, uh, that hasn't colored, I'm not letting that color my choices, I'm going back, I do think I know exactly which ones I would bump, would reject, mm. because I do think you can tell in the first sentence whether you're going to buy a story or not. Uh, but I'm either going to read The Doctor of Daughter Moreau by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, which uh -huh. I have here, I have Maror by Levi Tidhar. I also have a, an advanced, 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 like a year in advance copy of a book I've been looking forward to for four years, maybe, Hopeland by Ian MacDonald, which I'm desperately going mm. to read. That's but, you know, I'm, oh, yeah, no, no. I read it, a chunk of it, and at one point it was going to be a batch of novellas, and then it's the novel. Um... I'm, I'm really eager. This is his first major novel in a chunk of time. It's very, very, very different from the Luna kind of stuff. Um, this is, I mean, this is a project that the way I understand it, and we definitely will get Ian on to talk about this, is he's been working on this book on and off for 20 years. Wow. That's... Uh, this, this, yeah, so this is a big thing. And he finished it just before his wife passed away. Um, so, yeah, just that. But... In terms of what you're talking about, sitting here talking to you, I have sitting to the left of me the frankly kind of kind of disappointing, very advanced review copy like version of the international paperback of Booth by Karen Joy Fowler, and I've got this overwhelming urge to just pick it up and read that. That's the thing. I mean, when you have a book like that, you're picking up and you're reading it, and it's it's not the same thing as clicking a file. I mean, I've got a book. The other problem is. Not seeing any front matter, not seeing anything, not even seeing promotional matter is something that I miss. One of the books on my Kindle, I just was getting my Kindle out to see what's there. 
And one of the books which it looks like I'm going to be reading pretty soon is The Book Eaters by Sun Yudin. It's a Torah book. Um, I don't know whether it's a Torah novel or a Torah novella. Uh, I know the general premise is a Novella, I think. Okay. I think? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating premise, but what I know about it is not what I'm getting from this file. It's not... Uh, it, and, and, and even having a sense of how long it is is something I can't get from looking at this file. So there, there are a lot of it. There's a new King, T. T. Kingfisher novel on my Kindle, which is probably going to be a lot of fun. It may not be something I'll review, but Kingfisher is, she's always delightful um, under whatever name she's writing. Uh, I've just finished reading uh, Chris Rowe's novella, These Prisoning Hills, which is... I've read his, it too. It, of course you've read it. But I mean, he's, he's talk about world building. He's doing something nobody else is doing. He's building up the mid south as a kind of uh, mm. it's it, 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 it's it's really uh, it's really Kentucky Tennessee fiction. And I know there is this sort of uh, group of a handful of writers who write about that part of the country. But it, it's he's really created a kind of fascinating world there. And I'd like to see a full length thing come out of all this somehow. I th- well, I, I think you're right. I think he's one of the more fascinating regional writers in science fiction. I think that every now and again, a regional voice emerges and we don't make enough of a fuss about it. I think Christopher is one of them. I think he's a marvelous writer. I think his collection that came out a couple of years ago from yeah. Small Beer was a remarkable thing. Every now and again, he talks about novels that he's almost finished and that he's writing. And <laughs> yeah, you just rubbed your microphone. I know I did. And, <laughs> Sorry. And yeah, I, I hope one of them will be finished one day so they can come out. But the, the, the short fiction, and I mean, the one you're, you're referring to, these prisoning hills, caveat, I acquired and edited it, stands alone, but relates to two other novellas that he wrote, the Volunteer st- uh, State and the Border State, which are in, mm. one in the, is, in, is in a collection, one was a standalone. But I think it's also reprinted. They're both in his collection, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and great, great stuff. Just, just, just wonderful stuff. And he's also got a fantasy. It was a really odd thing. I acquired a science fiction novella from Christopher for uh, Tor, but at the same time, Ellen Datlow appeared. Uh, you know, picked up a dark fantasy one. So yeah, that'll come out next year, maybe. I think. So in other words, there's, there's no shortage of things uh, to, to look forward to. I mean, there are things I don't know if I'll get to them because, they're, because of the odd circumstances of their being published. One is John M. Ford's unfinished posthumous novel Aspects. Uh, again, one of the great influential writers that is in danger of disappearing because of his untimely death. And I don't know how many people... His books more or less stay in print, but they stay in print in classic reprint series, I think, not in um, not yeah. in any marketable way. Okay. Well, I think that's it. I think we're done. We're over the hour. We've got an episode. It'll come out to, later today, I hope. I, w- I will be torn about what I read because I want to read the book, but I should do the work. I've got to edit all these columns, Gary. Um, uh, that's yeah. too bad. It's... Um... It's a Sunday. Uh, yeah, it's a Sunday. And it's I've a got Sunday. To, um, I've got to finish a long lecture, which I have to deliver. In Oklahoma. I have to go to Oklahoma on a Wednesday. Uh, but I took half a Saturday to finish reading all the, all the Seas of the World. So, Well, I'm glad that you Actually, liked it as well as I did because it's, uh, the, as, as I say. The problem with all the Seas of the World was it made me want to read another novel. Um. I think I know what you mean. And I think one of the things, and I've uh, talked about this before, it's one of the things that I think impressed me about the last, it impresses me generally, but the last several novels have really been, if you took away the fantasy, the science fiction, the alternate history, you mentioned the main character, the main two or three characters really, but especially um, the main female character, are terrific characters. You want to, you know these people, you want to deal with them, you feel for them and so forth. Same thing happened um, with the, uh, Chinese American, the girl who becomes the actress who becomes the siren queen in Niveau's novel. The same thing happened with the young woman who, be, who who's coming of age. Really, is uh, the focus of the uh, Kelly Barnhill novel. All of these novels that I would have enjoyed uh, very much with with or without many science fiction fireworks. In other words, 
I got engaged with the characters. And more and more, this is happening. More and more, I think um, it's not enough for a fantasy writer or a science fiction writer to rest on world building. Uh, we expect real characters from them. And we know there are a lot of writers mm. out there who are capable and inclined to give us those characters. So, um, so that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I want to see these people again. I, I, I miss the characters in Guy Kay's novel. I'm, when, when at the end of a novel you find that you miss these people, that means they've been real to you. You know, that's not actually what I meant, but I do take your point. What I meant was oh, okay, I enjoyed right. the act of reading so much. I, I enjoyed the act of reading a novel okay, so much, and I haven't done it for a little while, that I really yeah. wanted to just read another one. And a couple of the books I've read this year took me a long time to read, not because of anything to do with them, but because of other things. So, for example, I've talked several times on the podcast about Babel by R.F. Quang, which wow. I enjoyed. But mm -hmm. it took me like six weeks because mm. I was doing all this other stuff. And six weeks to spread a novel across is not so much fun, whereas all the seas of the world I read like in a day and a half. Yeah. And I just want to dive back into our book. And Bruce is just sitting there going, you could dive into me. Mm -hmm. And anyway. I have no doubt that it would be very rewarding uh, to, to do so. I mean, the, the, you, you, you have the choice when you're dealing with, okay, I know we're past over time, but you, know, you have an advantage I do. You're reading books. You have to read a lot of stuff for anthologies. You have to read a lot of stuff for Tor.com. There's a lot of stuff, submissions and so forth and so on. But when it comes to novels, you have the freedom pretty much to choose everything you want. I maybe, I've, I've got stuff that I, if I'm reading something that's fun, I know there's something I should be writing, reading for review over here. I don't think that's true. You don't think I that's think the true. difference is I have all that other stuff to read, but when I do get around to reading novels, apart from a short period of t time during the year that I give myself off, mm -hmm. um, which is usually like January, February, I give myself off to read just whatever I want. But the rest of the year, it's like I should be reading books that could be important when it comes time to do recommended reading. Well, that's, that's just ridiculous amounts of guilt you're imposing on yourself. But, but also, I mean, I mean, to be fair as well to the world, those are also sometimes the books I most want to read. Well, that's true, I mean, too. All the Seas of the World by Guy Gabriel Kay is a book that is likely to feature in recommended reading and was a book I really wanted to read. Yeah. I do want to go and make time to read the Sequoia Nagamatsu book because it looks terrific. Um, I will confess I have a pile of very worthy-looking anthologies that I feel like I should read, but I just feel like I should. That's, I guess, what I'm getting at. There are, we, we don't need to get into this right now, but yeah, there, as, as reviews editor for Locus, you get involved in this decision. All the reviewers get involved in the decision. Here's a book that looks like a lot of fun, and here's a book that probably ought to be covered. And sometimes the one that's fun, sometimes you're right, sometimes the one that's fun is the same one that ought to be covered. And sometimes yeah, it's not. Yeah. I mean, I do the same thing you do. I take a week, a month, and read non-Locus stuff non-science fiction stuff. I try to keep up with some mainstream things. Um, and, and and by and large, it works. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything except that I've completely lost track of mysteries, which I used to know something about 20 yeah. years ago. Oh, well. Well, as you know, and, and everybody who listens to the podcast knows, I read exactly one series of mysteries in the last chunk of years, uh, the uh, Adrian McKinty series. Adrian McKinty and series. And that's about it. And I, I, too, used to read many, many. So So it goes. This is life. It's fine. It's anyway, life. We're done. Okay. We're done. This is it. Yeah. We're out. We're going to come back next week. We're going to talk to the fabulous, wonderful, interesting, provocative, entertaining Nicola Griffith about her new project, Spear, which is coming out from Tor.com in April, which means you can pre-order it and probably get it quite soon. Maybe even get it early. Who knows? Uh, and also maybe a little bit about her forthcoming project, Mimord. Who knows? The sequel to Hild, which is gather rather long at this point i gather but we'll ask her about that next week so until until we get back with nicola griffith this has been the good street podcast yes it has <laughs>